0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So Let's now open God's Word, Revelation chapter 20, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The text for the sermon this afternoon is Mark 1, 21-28. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus, whenever we pick up the Bible or to read it or to study it, there are always a number of you call them, dangers that, that come with that. There are many of them. And one of them is a tendency for us to flatten out what we read. Let me explain what, what that means. When this happens, what we're doing is we're missing important details and, and we end up misunderstanding God, misunderstanding His Word, missing the riches of His Word. For instance, in our text this afternoon, we read about the Lord Jesus going to the synagogue to teach on the Sabbath. We read this, and perhaps we might imagine that it might be something like us going to the mall or to the grocery store or maybe to church. In other words, nothing really remarkable, nothing really out of the ordinary. And so we quickly read over it. Big deal. Jesus went to the synagogue. So what? By taking that attitude or approach, we're missing the big picture of what's going on here. After all, what was a synagogue? The Romans didn't have synagogues. Neither did the Greeks, or the Egyptians, or anybody else for that matter. Only the Jews had synagogues. Synagogues were found in many Jewish towns and villages. In Palestine, they are also found outside of Palestine, wherever you might find a significant population of Jews. The synagogue was a building where Jews would gather for worship. If they lived in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, they might go there to the temple. But not everyone lived in Jerusalem or near there. And so, synagogues sprang up. During worship at the synagogue, prayers would be offered, psalms would be sung or chanted, and there would be the reading and there would be the teaching of Scripture. Jewish synagogues existed for the worship and education of God's people. When the Lord Jesus went to the synagogue in Capernaum, this was something special, something we ought not to gloss over. We can be sure that he'd been to various synagogues before this. He was, after all, a 30-year-old Jewish man. But now, he was no longer coming as someone who might sit in the benches. Synagogues did have benches or pews, like we do. He was now coming to the synagogue in his office as the Messiah. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament is coming to God's covenant people as they're gathered in worship in Capernaum. This isn't just about Jesus going to be with His people, His fellow Galileans. This text is about the promised Christ coming to God's people, the Anointed One, the people with whom God had been working for hundreds of years. We need to have a sense of historical consciousness to understand what's really happening here in Mark 1. We need to remind ourselves that God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We need to be reminded that this is part of the fulfillment of that promise. A promise that would lead to freedom. We also need to note the timing of what happens here. It's on the Sabbath. There were synagogue services every day, but Christ chose to act on the Sabbath. When we look back in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is the day to celebrate freedom from Egypt slavery. Remember what Moses says in Deuteronomy 5 when he reminds the people of the Ten Commandments. When he comes to the fourth commandment, he says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, too, is about freedom. And so freedom is the air that this passage breathes. In our text, the Lord Jesus comes with authority and He brings freedom to the synagogue where God's people are gathered in worship. We could say that this passage is about the day that God Himself came to the synagogue in Capernaum. And so I've summed up the text with this theme. The authoritative Christ comes to God's people with freedom. We'll consider two things here. The freedom in His teaching and then also the freedom in his driving out an evil spirit. Well, let's begin we begin with our text. Verse twenty one tells us that Jesus and his four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, who we just called, they went to Capernaum. They had been on the shore of the Sea of Galilee somewhere, most likely on the northwest side, and now they made their way to the town of Capernaum. If you have a map In your Bible, you may be able to see that Capernaum 2 is located on the Sea of Galilee. As we've already noted, this happened on the Sabbath day. And again, that's not a detail that we should miss. Mark tells us that Christ went into the synagogue and He began to teach. Now, there's not a lot of detail here. And that should intrigue us. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching. The emphasis here is not on the content If we're really curious, we could guess that he was teaching something similar to what we heard him saying last week about the kingdom of God. But That would just be a guess. It would be a good, really good guess, but still a guess. We really need to focus on what Mark draws to our attention, and that's the power of his teaching. The people were awestruck. His teaching wasn't like anything they had ever heard before. Why was that? Because he taught them with authority. He didn't teach them like the the Jewish scribes and rabbis. You see, they, the Jewish scribes and rabbis, they were the, the normal synagogue teachers. They had a totally different approach. When they taught, when they got up behind the synagogue pulpit, it was always with an appeal to the authority of someone else. They would constantly be saying things like, Moses said this, or Rabbi so-and-so said that. But they would never teach and say, but I say. There always had to be an appeal to higher authority. The Christ was different. He was teaching as one who had the right to say things on his own authority. He was teaching as one who knew what he was talking about to be certain. He wasn't offering his opinions or the opinions of anyone else. He came across as the expert. He came across as though he was speaking on God's behalf. The prophets of the Old Testament used to talk like that. But in the time of Jesus, prophecy had all but fallen silent. There was one exception, and that was John. But when the rabbis and scribes taught, they could not speak with direct authority. But Christ could, and He did. And when He spoke in this way, it reflected the fact that He had been commissioned by God, anointed by God, to teach and to preach. God had authorized Him to climb behind the synagogue pulpit and speak with certainty and confidence. You may remember from last week in verse 14, we're told that he was heralding the good news of God. Here again, we see him speaking in his capacity as a herald, doing it powerfully and in a way that struck in on to people, people who'd never heard this kind of preaching and teaching before. Man who had the freedom to teach with certainty and confidence. He was free. He was not dependent on the interpretations or opinions of man. He was free to teach God's Word exactly the way that God would have it taught. And while we're not told what it was He taught, we can at least be sure that it was nothing less than the good news He was heralding in verse 14. He came to announce that the light was beginning to shine in the darkness for God's people. There was hope. There was good news. There was going to be freedom. What the teachers of the law could not bring, Christ had come to bring. They could only give interpretations of the law. Christ came to bring the promise of the gospel and freedom. But Christ teaches us the same thing and in the same way today. He does so, first of all, through His written Word. We can read and we can study our Bibles and we can hear God's Word speaking to us the promise of the Gospel. And we can hear it in an authoritative way. The Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't have Bibles like we have. Many of them memorized Scripture, of course. But there wasn't the easy access to the whole Bible that we have. We have our Bibles. Almost all of us are literate. We can read them. And we have God's promise that His Word is clear and dependable. We have His promise that His Spirit will lead us into all the truth. He does that through His Word. And it is the Word of God. It's not the opinions, not the ideas of men. It is the Word of God, which teaches us the promise of the Gospel, which gives us freedom. Christ also teaches us today through His Word as it's preached. As we sit under the preaching each Sunday. Remember, this is our day of freedom. The day we celebrate the freedom we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to church and we remember that. And then we also hear the Word preached. And we can hear it done so with certainty and authority. While there may be certain minor aspects of a text that minister may be unsure about, there's never any doubt about the main message of God's Word as it's preached. That's because we preach Christ. Pastors preach Christ and Him crucified. Do that with certainty and conviction. We need appeal only to the authority of God's Word. And so, so through the preaching, the authoritative voice of Christ is still heard. Does that amaze you? The second Helvetic Confession, one of the confessions of the Reformation, says that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That's an amazing statement. It accurately represents what the Bible says about preaching. Take Romans 10, for instance. A well-known passage. One of the verses there, Romans 10, 17, speaks about preaching and says that the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Word of Christ. Well, that can mean the Word that speaks about Christ. Christ but it can also mean the Word that belongs to Christ. Christ still speaks with authority from the pulpit. He still brings God's people the promise of the Gospel, which gives freedom. And He also does that through another means, through a visual preaching of the Gospel. Whenever we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, These are visible ways of bringing the gospel to us. The promise of the gospel in an authoritative way. So in all these ways, Christ still speaks. And He does so with authority. And He does so bringing freedom. Let's now move on in our text. and We come to verse 23. Once again, we need to pay attention to the details. The Holy Spirit tells us here that there was a man in their synagogue. And we just need to stop right there. Because what kind of men would you find in a Jewish synagogue? Well, Jewish men, obviously. This man was not some Gentile off the street. This was a man who had been circumcised on the eighth day. He had been raised a Jew. Like us, he was a member of the covenant, a child of God, a recipient of God's promises that had been made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Like us, this man had been promised freedom in the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But for now, the serpent had his evil grip on this man. We're told that he was possessed by an evil spirit. This child of God had been made a slave of the serpent. He said and and he did things that no normal child of God would ever do. He was under the thumb of the evil one. What a terrible, terrible state to be in. We're not told how long he'd been like this nor does it really matter. Even if it had been merely for a day, being in this kind of slavery to an evil spirit is ugly. evil spirit took control of, of this man's mouth and used it to communicate with Christ. Now most Bible translations leave out the first word that's spoken. It's sort of a, an exclamation. We could translate it something like, <laughs> It's an exclamation of surprise or enormous displeasure. The demon didn't sound happy to see Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum on that Sabbath. He goes on to cry out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The first question we could ask here is, why does he talk about us? Well, he's not alone. That refers to the forces of evil. Demons. Individual demons are part of a larger force. We know that Satan has his angels who follow him. The demon here is afraid of Jesus Christ and what his teaching represents for him and his allies. Remember what Christ is doing. He's bringing the good news of freedom. The demon indicates further that he knows who he's up against. The Holy One of God. The people are still trying to sort through who he is. But this evil spirit, he knows it. And he says it out loud. He knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. That means he knows Jesus is the promised Messiah. The one sent to crush the head of his master. Why does he say it? Listen carefully. By having one of the first acknowledgements of Christ's identity come from a demon, the stage is being set for what happens later in Mark when the Jewish leaders claim that Jesus is on Satan's side. The evil one, wants people to believe that this is the Messiah. Everyone knows that the evil one is the father of lies. Therefore, this man on the synagogue pulpit cannot be the true Messiah. See what's happening? Sort of a reverse psychology. Mind trick. So when we read these words, we need to remember that Satan is very cunning and very deceitful. He'll even use the truth to advance his agenda of destruction and ultimately deceit. By having a demon proclaim the truth about Jesus, the game seems to be rigged for Jesus' defeat. However, we must also keep in mind what Martin Luther once said. Even the devil is God's devil. Satan believed he was gaining the upper hand on Jesus by having this demon proclaim the truth about him. Brothers and sisters, even the devil is God's devil. That's to say that the devil is in God's hand and under God's sovereignty. God would use even the cunning of Satan to advance His agenda of freedom for the captives. Because God's plan was that Christ's redemptive work could only progress with the opposition of the Jewish leaders. Part of His humiliation, what led to His death on a cross, was this strategy of Satan. Very cunning. And having a, a demon proclaim Him as the promised Messiah. So in a, in a sense... We can say that God put the Gospel in the mouth of this demon. The devil said check, but God said checkmate. That thought should strike us with awe and send us to our knees. What a God we worship! The demon is allowed to say this much and then no more. Christ rebukes him. Tells him to be quiet. Christ doesn't want any more such testimony from this demon. He not only shuts him up, but he also does something remarkable for this child of God in whom this demon was living. He frees him. He exorcises the demon. Now he doesn't do it with some elaborate ceremony or, or ritual, simply with his words. Come out of him. Note again the devil is God's devil. The demon has no choice but to obey. And so he does come out of the man. The man was shook violently and there was a loud shriek and the demon went away. On that Sabbath day, at the synagogue in Capernaum, a covenant child of God was freed by Jesus the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, stand in awe of your Savior. He is the power to speak. And demons must obey him. He comes to bring freedom and life to those who have been robbed of it, whether by Satan, whether by the world or their own sinful flesh. He's our savior. That child of God, member of the covenant, had been held captive by an evil spirit. And that thought, I know, makes us ask all kinds of questions about the presence of evil spirits and demons today. And whether, for instance, children of God today can be possessed by demons. Here I have to say that I don't have the answers. I really wish I did, but I don't. Maybe someday I will, but right now I don't. I can only preach to you what we know for certain. When we can know for certain that our Savior has definitively crushed the head of the serpent. He did that on the cross. We can know for certain what we read in Revelation 20. From there and elsewhere in Scripture, we can know for certain that Satan is on God's chain. He can do nothing apart from God's sovereignty. And we can know for certain that God's sovereignty is exercised in love for His children. We can know for certain what we read in Romans 8.38 that neither angels nor demons can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are things that we can know for certain. And when there are uncertainties, we interpret them in the light of what we know for sure. We have to cling to what we know to be certain and true. And above all, we we cling to Christ, the Liberator. Verse 27 tells us that the the people were amazed at what had happened. They were amazed at His teaching and and what He did with this demon. You could say that they they were amazed at what He taught the demon. Namely, he, He taught that demon that the demon is subject to Him. Christ is the one who has authority. When he speaks to the evil spirits, they must unfailingly obey. Never before had the people of Israel seen a teacher like this. And it's no wonder then Mark tells us that his reputation quickly spread far and wide throughout Galilee. And note that their amazement and, and his reputation doesn't necessarily translate into, into faith or belief. You don't have to look much further ahead than chapter 2 to find that it didn't take long for stiff opposition to begin against Christ. The man who'd had the demon was obviously under Satan's grip. The rest of the people, well, they were also under his spell, though it was much more subtle. This was the defining time in the history of the world, and the battle was well underway. Satan was going to do everything he possibly could to destroy the work of the Redeemer. He would use every strategy in his playbook. Subtle and not so subtle. But in the end, nothing can stop God. Nothing can stop God's anointed One. You know, brothers and sisters, that gives us hope for today and for the future. It's true that God's redemptive plans for the freedom of His people, they have not yet been entirely fulfilled in history. They are not fulfilled with you personally. You're still living in this broken world. And He is still bringing you forward. He is making the freedom you have in Christ a reality every day in your sanctification. And nothing will stop Him from doing this for you. God's redemptive plans are also not fulfilled on the larger scale of all His people. He is still bringing them collectively forward, bringing more people to freedom in Christ, bringing more people out of the kingdom of darkness and into His marvelous light. Nothing will stop Him from doing this for His chosen ones. Our text, and indeed the whole Bible from front to back, is a testimony to God's power in the past. And His power in the past, combined with His unchangeable character and His promise for the future, that gives us reason for hope. Finally, at the end of the age, we will receive what has been promised. We will receive the final Sabbath rest our glorious eternal freedom from sin and death, all those wonderful blessings which Christ has won for us. This afternoon our text puts Christ, the liberator, squarely before our eyes. Why? So that more and more we would entrust ourselves to Him. So that we would praise Him more and more and live for Him in thankfulness and love so that we would eagerly wait for the day. And as we'll we'll sing in a moment from Martin Luther's famous hymn, the man of God's own choosing, he will win the final battle and we will be free forever. Even so, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.